Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Yen Liao, the founder and managing partner of Aravat Global, a fundamental global equity firm based in New York that manages long, short, and long-only products. Yen founded Aravat after a long stint at famed family office Ziff Brothers Investments, where he was part of the team that managed a market-neutral, long-short hedge fund in a culture of framework thinking and continuous improvement. Our conversation covers Yen's background, experience at ZBI, and lessons about process, competitive edge, and training. 
We then turned to his application of those lessons to Aravat Global. We discussed three right-tail strategies for long positions, the challenges in owning compounders, the art of short selling, portfolio construction, game selection, drivers of success, and challenges going forward. For those lovers of learning about the nuance of public equity investment strategies, you're in for a real treat. Please enjoy my conversation with Yen Liao. Yen, thanks so much for doing this. Ted, so great to see you. Thank you so much for your time. Let's just start with your background and maybe how you first got interested in investing. So Ted, I fell in love with business when I was really young. So I grew up in Australia and when I was a teenager, I just grew up completely in awe of business. And it was the creation aspects of it that really captured me. What I meant specifically is I always wondered how a single person could create a company or a real estate fortune in one lifetime. And that just captured me at a very young age. And I started you know, manual labor at a very young age as well. And I was very fortunate that I had a mentor. His name was Peter Gunn, who let me work in his warehouses and taught me a lot of the simple skills of capitalism and investing when I was very, very young, but through the toils of hard labor. And so I actually started investing when I was about 15 years old. But for the fullness of record, for the first 15 years of my investing life, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so I didn't even know what a hedge fund was until I was 29. I studied law and I studied accounting in Australia. And then I went actually to work for Bain & Company, the consulting firm for the next five years, which was just an amazing in-depth immersion into understanding business strategy and the success drivers of business. And then quite frankly, coming out of the dot-com bust, I thought I was going to go work for Bain Capital or one of the private equity firms. And I was just through great fortune in the summer of the dot-com bust that I went and worked for an extremely close friend of mine, Ian McKinnon at Ziff Brothers Investments. And so I stumbled into this industry. I wish I could tell you that it was something that was purposeful from when I was younger. It wasn't. I was very interested in investing, but more interested in business, quite candidly. And uh, I was very, very lucky to land at ZVI and actually started my professional investing career the day the markets reopened after 9-11. So September 17th, 01 was the first day I started at 30 years old, plus one day, my professional investing career. And I spent the next 13 years at Ziff Brothers. And that was just an amazing experience and learned from a ton of people. And that's how I got into the game. So why don't you walk through a bit of what ZBI's structure was and how you learned along the way while you were there? So ZBI was the private investment vehicle for the Ziff family. The Ziff family came from Ziff Davis Publishing, and it was run by the three brothers. So the patriarch was Bill Ziff, and it was run by his three sons. This was an incredible learning opportunity and a phenomenal culture. So I started there in the summer of 2000, and there was about six of us inside there. And interestingly enough, they love training from the bottom up. So not one of us, including the portfolio manager, Ian McKinnon, had professional public market experience at the time. So it was designed as an equity market neutral structure, one central book. I ran at the end of it three of the sector portfolios that focused into it. There was wonderful, wonderful culture. The brothers also learned this from Ziff Davis, which was an extraordinary culture in its industry. And this was really all about people, processes, and training. So first of all, on the people front, incredibly good people, very hardworking, very curious, very performance-oriented, but given the room to be accountable, authentic, and actually do their thing. So process over outcome was a really important part of what we do um, at Ziff, and we were very, very drilled. So training was an essential part of this. They have a very high training culture. And we were exposed to many of the greatest investors in the world. The Ziffs were very connected and they brought many of them in. So, you know, at a fairly early stage of my career, Steve Mandel, John Griffin, Jim Chanos, Eddie Lampert, they would all come through 
and would share with us some of their wisdom and we would get a chance to pepper them with questions. And frankly, it was like a compressed business school experience, you know, very tangible formats with a group of peers that were at similar stages of life that were very competitive and very established learning machines. And it was honestly 13 years, the best years of my life. As all these different types of experts came through, how did you sort of figure out what most resonated for you in your own style of investing? That is a really great question. So, and by the way, Ziff was focused on variant perception. So it actually allowed a lot of individual exploration on your question, Ted. And for me, initially, there was lots of different approaches. So this was a long, short fund. And, and actually, the first $100 million I made was on the short side. This was coming out of the dot-com bust. So on both the long and the short side, we were exploring all the different elements of investing. And so just stepping back for a second, there are four edges in the business, right? So the pursuit of compounded returns over long periods of time, the four edges were informational, analytical, behavioral, and then structural. The Ziffs had permanent capital. We had a massive structural advantage. Back then, there was an informational advantage. This was pre-GFC. And we had forensic accountants. We had investigative journalists. And you know, there was information edge that was still available back then. And then we focused extremely on, on analytic edge, which is much more enduring, and behavioral edge as well, which is uh, persistent, actually. So I discovered, actually, after the first five years that I was at Ziff, I didn't feel like what I was doing was persistent and scalable. It felt like I had to chase down the rabbit every year and find it. And it was, frankly, I didn't find it an enduring. And we were so process-oriented. And so I actually started in the summer of 2006 at a summer retreat. We, Eddie Lampert came to it, actually. And I just said to Eddie, how did you manage to be this good this young? Right? No one's this good this young. It's not natural. And he just said to me in his 20s and 30s, he would put an enormous amount of effort training his pattern recognition of the right tail. And he effectively gave me insight into the right tail of pattern recognition. And the way he did it was through a case study methodology. And so, Ted, one of the things that I discovered was I spent the next 15 years of my life decoding the right tail of equity markets for the long side and the left tail for the short side of the market. But there was also, and I think it's a really insightful question, there's a material overlap that needs to be discovered between what works and can you do it. And that journey took me another 10 years. I worked out what works, but it took me another 10 years to work out what works for me. I want to dive through that. Before we do that, you mentioned that ZBI was structured as an equity market neutral strategy. What was the thinking behind structuring it that way? So the thought process in setting up uh, equity market neutrality was the family believed very fervently that in equity market neutrality, it would reward skill through cycle and remove the vicissitudes of markets. And so it was more reliant on alpha, what we could produce, the skill and repetitive process of what we could produce versus just the time arbitrage of markets. Now, I disagreed with the structure although it was incredibly successful, because I actually do believe that time arbitrage is one of the greatest advantages in markets if you can exploit it. The family chose differently and was, again, insanely successful in exploiting it. But when I left ZBI and created Aravat Global, I started off with a more traditional tiger net long structure. But actually, in, after reviewing what had happened to the markets, and we'll get into that at some point in this conversation, I actually shifted to a significantly higher net structure because I think the structure of the market had changed and time arbitrage is one of the most potent forces that we have in our arsenal. Take me back a little bit. You started Aravat seven years ago. 
markets have changed a lot, even just in that period of time. So you had touched on the things that you learned, the processes that work, the edges that are there, and then what works for you. And maybe one by one, let's go through that from your perspective when you were leaving ZBI. So the, the first piece there is what are those processes that you decided to take with you in your sort of investment approach in the initial years of that kind of Jones model hedge fund structure for Arvad? Absolutely. So Ziff was extraordinarily detailed in their training for single security selection and risk management processes. So I ported that from Ziff to Arvad. What I focused on though is in my research in that period, which was about eight years into it at the time, I knew there was three right tail strategies that defined the right tail. And so I define the right tail, by the way, as five and 10 year rolling periods above 20% compounded returns. And what I found is about 14% of securities above a billion dollars in market cap could do it. This was in the prior 26 years, and only 3% of securities could do it for 10 year rolling periods. And I knew what the strategies were. So I took those three strategies and I had three for the left tail as well. And we launched Aravat with that. I didn't have the centralized portfolio uh, systems level risk skills when I started this fund, that was something I knew I had to work out as a portfolio manager. But what we took from Ziff is, in my view, I took the best parts that worked for me. There were many parts that were excellent that still didn't work for me to be fully clear. But I brought over what I organically had decoded for myself as the three right tail and the three left tail strategies. And I tried to assemble a team and a portfolio construct that could exploit that. We got to dive in there. What are those three right tail strategies? So the three are built up of one is compounders at large. There's lots of different variants in there dependent upon the growth rates and the valuation paradigms. The second is called secular within cyclical. It's a commodity framework where there's a demand shock with a delayed supply response. And then the third element in there is called quality transitions. It's an M&A framework, which either at a company or an industry level, it consolidates to improve the quality of outcomes and a re-rating of the entire industry structure. So let's go through each of those a bit. How do you define compounders? Compounders at its finest, in my view, is some elements of either monopolistic or oligopolistic market structures that can compound earnings power at a brisk rate over long periods of time. So compounding, I think, is the most important thing we do in investing period. That is, in my view, the entire quest of the mission. And compounders, by definition, is the most mathematically elegant version of it. It's effectively finding companies that can compound and have durable earnings power for long periods of time. And within compounders is hyper growth to lower but steadier growth and everything in between. So within compounders at large, what we found for us is we only focus on what we call horses, which is a, a type of GARP. And it's not hyper growth and it's not slow because our true north is we believe earnings power drives total return over time, not in the short term. In the short term, multiple is a very large driver. By the time year three through five, it's ex almost exclusively earnings power that's driving total return. And by year 10, multiple almost has nothing to do with it. So what we've landed on in compounders actually is a version of exclusively focusing on monopolies and oligopolies, finding growth rates of earnings power that is in the 20s to 30s, multiples of the underlying market, and then finding them with reasonable prices that lets us navigate volatility up and down through cycle. Compounders is certainly a word that you hear very desirable. I'm curious, as you looked at compounders, take the other side of that, which is what are the compounders that you may see other people invest in that you think don't work very well? So one of the false gods in our industry is actually the, the highest performing short-term stocks are lower quality businesses that are levered. 
if you catch them in the right part of the cycle or you catch them when they're transitioning from lower quality to higher quality, those are explosive one-year returns. So the trade-offs that I see in people that are coming into compounding is they're making like great businesses rarely trade cheaply. And those that are much more optically valuation sensitive will tend to lower quality businesses if they don't have the patience to wait for great businesses to become cheap. Henceforth, they're trading off business quality. And the reason why they do it, so Ted, I'm not a golfer. I've played once in a while, but it's the equivalent in my view when you're bringing out your honking driver and you smack it down the middle of the fairway and it goes 300 yards, right? But the problem is it's one out of 15 of those holes where it's actually gone straight. That's what keeps pulling people in. So the hardest part about being an investor in high quality compounding is you require at a systems level to build in patience to wait for great businesses to become cheap. It's very rare, or you need to have the fortitude to be able to predict two, three, four years out and have the boldness to hold through volatility to see your thesis out. Those are very, very difficult skills. The mathematics of this is actually very elegant and simple. The execution of this is very challenging. How about that second category? Is it secular, cyclical? Secular within cyclical. Yeah. How does that work? For the past two decades, this effectively has been almost everything on the other side of China. So what happens is you have a demand shock and it takes multiple years for the supply to catch up. So these are traditionally lower quality businesses. This is not something we focus on a lot right now. In fact, although that playbook would be quite handy in what we're seeing where markets are going in this next couple of years. So the playbook we applied it primarily was through energy in everything from natural gas, refiners and chemicals and food commodities for that matter. What happens, you have an entire demand shock, a shift in the demand curve into a fixed or delayed supply response. So what happens is you have a lower quality industry and margins explode and stay high for multiple years. And that drives a re-rating from usually a mid-single digit multiple to a double digit multiple. You get a two or three or four X on the multiple and you get a two or three X on the earnings power and cash flow explodes. And that's how you get a 10 bagger. And so that was a very, very productive playbook that we applied to agriculture and to the energy complex when I was at Ziff and for the first three years at Aravat. It's infrequent. So compounders are pervasive. This framework is scarcer. You need a demand shock and then you need a delayed supply response. They do exist. I am seeing them right now. That's how that framework works. And how about the third category, the transition? For me, this is the worst one in the world. So I'll tell you what it is, but I like this is one where I know exactly that it works and I know exactly that I can't do it and I don't know how to risk manage it. So the framework here is effectively you tie two businesses together or you find a lower quality business, you bring in a new management team and you try to change it. So the quality transition is usually got some M&A component to this. By the way, hedge funds love this. Why? Because it's highly idiosyncratic. It's a 30, 40, 50, 60 IRR but it's very, very low prediction environment. And what I mean by that is there's lots of variables to get this right, but when you get it right, it's 350 yards straight down the middle. But the hit rate for me personally was terrible. And it's a very difficult thing to risk manage because you don't know when your thesis is not going right until it's too late, which is vastly different than our horses. So for this one, you have to be able to take a lower quality industry or company and you either upgrade it through a management team and M&A or you're literally buying your way up into quality. So it starts off with a much more cash generative business, but it's much more cyclical, generally speaking, or it's run poorly. 
And then you put in a team or you combine it and the industry starts finding more rationality or pricing power or cost efficiency. And then you can start buying and upgrading the quality of earnings power. It's a very, very explosive model. It's just very hard to put into place. But the hedge fund world loves this because it's highly idiosyncratic, but it's really hard, or at least it's hard for me. So before we turn to the three things that work on the short side, I'm curious, as you focus in on these horses, it sounds so simple, right? You find these durable compounders and you just hold them for a long time. What are the challenges that come up in managing that portfolio and the inevitable volatility that you see in these names over time? The biggest challenge you have on a compounder portfolio is you've got to be extremely patient, both in terms of holding them and waiting for them. And this is one of the things why I think it's very simple, but it's very, very hard. So in 2017, spanning 2017, we had enormous performance, but we bought one stock for 17 months. When you have a big analyst team and you buy one stock in 17 months, it drives them crazy. So our construct is we have three books on each side of our portfolio three on our long and three on our short. Book one is live. Book two is is fully battle-ready inventory. Book three is a curated research universe. Our team focuses exclusively on the second portfolio. My job is the first portfolio. So their job is to make sure the portfolio is primed with potential performance. And if we get price volatility, we are fully battle-prepared. And it's inexcusable to us not to be prepared. So it's a separation of research process from risk decisions. The challenge with compounders is you have to be patient. And that's the scarcest commodity, in my view, in global equity markets. So when you get violent rotations, like we did in December of 2018 and March of 2020, we bought three stocks in a week, which for us is the equivalence of hyperactivity. We get the chance to upsize everything and we get the chance to rotate into higher quality and we get the chance to finally buy some things that have rarely been cheap. And that's the opportunity for it. So the the biggest challenge is you need to structurally build in patience. Now, the other part of this is handling up and down volatility. Down volatility is quite commonly known. I think there's been a lot of attention to it. The most important part I would emphasize in downside volatility, our approach to this is hold through, not add down. Now, this is a profound one for us. It was a shift in 2016 for us. When your philosophy is... And I think it's a really important driver of high performance is how well invested you are in cycle. And I think most investors, including us till not that long ago, always love to hold a little bit of dry powder. It's very expensive when you're compounding at 20 plus percent. And history will tell you the math is severely against you. So what we've adjusted to, and this has been four and a bit years ago now, is when you're owning very high quality businesses, we don't feel compulsion to add down. It's emotionally very satisfying. It's a great thing to talk about. But if you've already got a huge position and draws down 20%, well, base rate of history will tell me actually it's 15% every year and it's 50% at least once every 10 years. That's kind of normal. And if I have dry powder or I can rotate into it more, great. But the policy is internally, actually, we don't feel any compulsion to be adrenal to having to add down because anything's down 20%. We just don't behave that way. Upside volatility is the harder part, actually. And I believe for compounders, upside volatility is the true show of skill. We got to get to both of these. So on the downside volatility, more and more I'm hearing people cite the book, The Art of Execution, which among other things says, if you have that 20% drawdown, the right strategy is to either cut it or to double down. And you're saying the opposite of that. How have you thought about that research and the data set compared to how you're going about implementing? 
Lee's book is a great book and one of the few books that's been written in this space, but the mindset is very different. And that comes down to the difference between high and low prediction environments. So we're in the business of predicting the future, which by definition is unknowable. However, there's a massive difference between high and low prediction environments. We invest in monopolies and oligopolies. By definition, those are higher predictable environments because we've isolated the element of competition. Competition alone reduces predictive ability dramatically. Why? Because your competitor the next day can wake up and decide we're changing terms of, the, of, of engagement. And that's exactly what happened during COVID. So we've focused exclusively on monopolies and oligopolies. That's all we focus on. And we just wait. So Lee's point is, by the way, correctly so, do you know the difference between opportunity and risk in downside volatility? For us, it depends on what drove it. So there's three types of downside volatility. One is macro, the second is factor, and the third is idiosyncratic. If it's macro driven, nothing has changed in our thesis, potentially the flow through rate, but in our underwriting, the quality of the business is unchanged. The second factor rotations, well, if earnings power is still intact and the thesis hasn't changed, it's a flow driven issue. There's nothing broken in the thesis. Idiosyncratic is the single security problem that you have to address. So in terms of Lee's advice on this, by the way, I find that a little too trading adrenal personally for my taste, right? If you own a position, a very concentrated portfolio, which ours is 80 to 90% for the top 10, right? And I think that's a really important part of our structural design because I totally believe that markets are efficient most of the time. And if you need lots of ideas to be able to beat the market, I think your odds are significantly diminished. A concentrated portfolio lets you do that, but overly concentrated amplifies volatility and error rate dramatically. But I think one of the most important skills in investing is taking the loss. I think that's the difference between a professional and an amateur, quite candidly, is this is a business of error reduction. If you don't know how to take loss, you can't play this game effectively. And knowing the difference between opportunity and risk in downside volatility is everything. I call that the bottom of the Nike swoosh. That is, if you've got the chance and you've got dry powder, we go for it, absolutely. But you've also got to bring the human element to this. If you're running a firm with multiple analysts and it's a big position, a 15 plus percent position, and it's just drawn down 20 plus percent, that's a big number for that analyst. It's likely half their exposure and they're freaking out. And they're, now you've got career risk in their head, right? If you double down there and they're wrong, they're gone and they know it. So you've got to be human about this. This is the other part of the equation I find is, a, is not well understood. This is a human art. It's not a science. And I actually think adrenal price response is exceedingly dangerous. In fact, we don't even trade day of. I don't even have a Bloomberg, right? We trade on a T plus one basis to remove the adrenal elements of decision making. Why? Because quite candidly, no decision we make on a daily basis actually matters. But Lee's point on you have to double down or you have to remove, I think is relevant for low prediction environments. But by the way, there's also severe danger in that. Because if it's a low prediction environment where you're doubling down, in my view, that's bravado. That's not skill. You're not basing that on fact and you're not thinking probabilistically. You're actually, that's a price signal that has no effective message to it. That's noise. All right, let's turn to managing the upside volatility, which you started talking about, the more difficult part of the equation. So upside volatility doesn't get anywhere near the amount of attention. And if you want to capture five to 10 times your money, you're going to have to handle periods that are uncomfortably higher multiple, expensive. You have to willingly accept there's going to be periods of drawdown. If you want to try to capture it, you have to willingly accept there are periods of underperformance in that. The hard part is no one knows when it is. And you have to willingly surrender to that journey if that's what you want to do. So another part of the journey here is false precision. 
even in operating in a high prediction environment, we have very talented analysts who are very good at forecasting our monopolies and oligopolies. But valuation is an art and driven by flows and a lot of different factors. And the difference between pinning your exit point two, three, four, or five years out is vastly different on your expected return for a single stock. The other hard part is you make 100% in a year on one stock, the IRR compresses dramatically, and then you've got this next idea which looks very sexy. And if you're trying to capture five to 10 times your money, at certain periods, you have to willingly accept those single stocks are going to underperform and likely draw down. So the skill in the upside volatility part of the ride is whether or not you understand how confident are you in forecasting outcomes, first of all, on earnings power, and are you willing to accept the volatility of that ride? And in my study of the right tail on single security and investors, it's inevitable in the passage to the right tail that downside volatility will hit you. And the reason it also hits you is you have to be willing to let it run to the upside. And so this is a definitive skill. I've spent a real amount of time writing white papers to try to dissect this and make it far more explicit. And that's a very important part of our training. We try to make implicit things explicit. This is one of the most important drivers in a high-performance tax-efficient compounder portfolio. You can't be a tax-efficient investor if trading is a driver of profit creation. It has to be durable earnings power. If that strategy isn't absolutely elemental, you by definition are not going to be a tax-effective investor. What are some of the other disciplines that you've brought in that help you get over the behavioral biases to effectively hold these compounders over time? So I'm not a naturally patient person. I come with pretty high energy to everything I do. So I'm a highly visual person. And we had to create our own risk systems over the last five years that lets me see the profit potential of our businesses. So my source of strength comes from the quality of our businesses, the quality of the people that we partner with, and the quality of my team. My source of patience comes from earnings power. So when I can see, literally see, that every day our portfolio is compounding earnings power at 20 to 30% year on year, what I know is that if I do nothing, I already know in a year's time, the intrinsic value of my portfolio is materially higher. And so I've separated out price signal from performance of our portfolio. We focus on potential energy in our portfolio. Our portfolio is either coiling with profit potential or it's performing. I can't control the latter. We focus only on the former. We surrender to the latter. And so what lets us be super patient is I can literally see, now it's false precision, let's be clear about this, on what the future return potential, I don't know the path and how it gets there, but I can see literally on a two, three or four year basis, what is broadly embedded in my first and second portfolio. And I can broadly see what the factor risks that we're taking to get there. And the default for us is largely do nothing when we've set because it's really hard to get these cheaply. It's not every day. And this is another paradox of our style of investing. And Charlie Munger has written quite extensively about this and also admitted to it. You know, there's a huge paradox that we all know that very high quality businesses rarely get cheap and they get actually very expensive on the ride. We all try to buy them cheap and we fully accept they're very expensive in certain stages of the ride that we would never buy them there. So I think another one of the misunderstandings, and it's a very different culture. So I fully accept it's been successful for others. It hasn't been successful for us. We do not think every day if we bought our portfolio, what we do. I think that's a false paradigm. And by the way, antithetical to tax effective investing. I just, I believe it's false precision. And so what we think is like, I call it crayon math, 
right? It's got to be directional. And it's, by the way, a blunt crayon. If it requires a five-page spreadsheet and third decimal point, hey, it's BS in, BS out, and it's complete false precision. That just doesn't admit to the realities of the markets that we face. So that's how we do it. We actually have risk systems that let me see. It's like a control panel on flying a plane. To bring this together into just your long book, how many names are in that book one? And then also in that holding period, book two and maybe book three. Book one is typically 20 positions, top 10, typically between 80 and 90% of equity. Book two ranges between 20 and 40 positions. So in a crisis, we'll buy three stocks. It's not as if we're rotating the entire portfolio, right? It's like hyperactive for us is 20% of of equity, which can actually meaningfully change outcomes, but it's not 50% of equity. And so we try to keep between 20 and 40 fresh in there at all times. In book three, there's about 100 to 200. It varies over time. It's a fairly stable number. And the reason it varies is IPOs and as we get to work through stuff, but that's what our screens produce. Okay, let's turn a bit to the short side. And as you mentioned, there were three frameworks that you think work for shorts. What are those three frameworks? So we have to define this to be a little careful um, because I think risk is poorly understood on the short side. Our mission on the short side is to deliver five to 800 basis points of alpha consistently. So it's alpha long short spread that matters in equity long short portfolios. And I actually think the left tail in short selling is extremely dangerous. So the down 50 to down 100 that your thesis is wrong is also happens to be the up 100. So if you study any index in any year in the world, six of the top 10 are really low quality businesses. Why? Because it's low prediction and probably very cheap and something happened and they explode. So we actually don't even look. It's very different. We're studying the far right tail on the longs, which by the way, requires only consistency at the 80th percentile to to land in the top five over time. So the one year curve is the 80, the the 10 year curve is in the five or in the three actually. The left side, we're focused on the second quartile consistently because the first quartile is extremely dangerous and very hard to replicate. By the way, very sexy to pitch, very, very hard to risk manage and very, very difficult to execute. So we focus on the second quartile of consistency with the mission of five to 800, which we've done for the majority of the time we've existed and more importantly, consistently. So here are the three. The first is we call them structural shorts. We love these. These are melting ice cubes. These are formerly good or great businesses where the premise the business was built on is no longer relevant, usually from technological obsolescence and or business model innovation. These are all tons of formerly great businesses, and you get the double whammy of imploding earnings power and multiple reduction. These can be phenomenal shorts that you can press on the way down. The second one is a type of competition short. It's a, this is a wider variance of outcome where you've effectively got an industry structure with a set of competitors, and the competitive dynamics can only escalate separately. On short selling, the execution window is much shorter. So it's not just the framework. Like on the long side, we're playing for multiples of our capital. On the short side, we're playing for between 15 and 30%. The execution window is much tighter. And I'll come to that in one second as well then. The third one is cyclical peaks. It's where you've got peak revenues, peak margins, peak multiple. Two of the three is good enough. And if you can execute those three, and this is where variant perception, I think, is also poorly understood. It's variant perception when and at what price. If you have a informational or, or analytic edge At $100, it may be extremely valuable. At $50, it may be worthless. In fact, it may be dangerous. And so our execution discipline on the short side is extremely important. In fact, that adds more alpha than the idea itself. 
It's how disciplined are you on the entry and exit because the window is that much smaller and time is not forgiving. So there's a lot of things that we don't do on the short side, which frankly creates a massive amount of alpha for us. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What are the structure of the book one, book two, book three on the short side? So the short book is 20 shorts. We also use bespoke hedges, which helps tremendously lever along our long book. Another important factor in that. I think another material source of short underperformance is if you have to run at a certain level of short gross, you will jam it. We ran one of the largest idiosyncratic short books in the world at Ziff. And the reason I created Aravat was in the bottom of GFC, markets are down 50 and we're hunting idiosyncratic shorts. I said, keep all the sharp objects away from me because I would rather stab myself in the eye than do this again, right? And it was just a really, really bad use of time. What we do to stop forcing ever in our idiosyncratic shorts, if we need protection on our long book because the long book is extended, we can do hyper-bespoke hedges designed to protect our long book. Its job literally is to protect the long book, not, not even idiosyncratic alpha. So the construct on our short book is 20 shorts, the second book is 40, and the book three, it varies a lot more. That one ranges from between 40 to 80, but it's much more idiosyncratic in nature. And given the shorter time windows on expected execution on the short side, how does your team's time allocation get spent on longs versus short research? I think people would be stunned by this. I actually don't understand it when people spend 60 to 80% of their time on the short side. My focus is where the money is. The short side is very difficult and it's very time intensive. And so one of the parts that we get to amortize our time really effectively is because we're so price disciplined on our short, we get to recycle our shorts for long periods of time. So for example, there are single names that we've shorted three plus times in the last two years, successfully, every time. And why it's the same thesis. We love it at one price, we hate it at another. We're not day traders. And again, trading is not my skill, not at all what we base our outcomes on. But we're disciplined in that risk is great at one price, risk is horrible at another, and that band is wide enough for us to make money. So to answer your question, us as an institution, we would spend less than a third of our time short selling, less than a third. And we can sustain five to 800 basis points of short alpha by doing that because we've built up seven years of inventory. So when we bring this long and short together, we now turn over to this whole question of portfolio construction. So you've got, you've got a, a bunch of names on the long side, a bunch of names on the short side. How are you thinking about both? How do you put the portfolio together and create the exposures that you want to create? It took me three years to work this out at Aravat. First three years, 
the, the step up to portfolio manager from single stock money maker is an enormous step up. And so I think the biggest question we have to ask, and there is a tremendous amount of alpha to be added in portfolio management skill, and it's effectively balancing, optimizing return for how much drawdown risk are you wanting to face. And optimizing return is gross exposure, which I think is incredibly underutilized and not focused on. It's a source of massive value. So just to bring that alive, the difference between 10 points of long exposure is literally one of your largest positions either in the portfolio or it's not. I think that's profound. And actually understanding the risk boundaries of your strategy is an essential portfolio management skill. You have to know the balance sheet edges of your strategy and know when to use them. I just don't think this gets enough focus. The next part of this is managing, optimizing through cycle return versus drawdown. Drawdown is driven by two things. One is error rate. The second is various rotational elements times gross exposure. And that's the skill of portfolio management is we need to design risk buckets for how much we want exposure to the up and to the down. I loved the podcast that Joel Greenblatt did with you. And I completely agree with his policy on like, for, we're pretty concentrated in our top 10, but we do it facing downwards, not upwards, where how much money can you lose in the big positions, not how much money that you, can, you, can you make. That's the only way you navigate for duration. And so what we're doing is we've created from the risk management perspective, and it's again, systems level risk is the job of a portfolio manager. It's risk budgets, which will be determined by how much drawdown you can tolerate and maintain equanimity when it happens. And also how much damage do you take when you're wrong? And so the exposures for us, there's a lot of art in here, but we've tried to make it explicit rather than implicit. So my team knows we have budgets by factor that, for example, the amount of leverage that we'll allow into our portfolio. Why? Because it all correlates when there's a credit crisis. They all act as one. So we have a budget for that. And when it gets a little high, we don't allow any more capital to come in for that. Uh, we don't work on any more ideas. And we have those budgets for all types of non-macro and non-idiosyncratic type risk. Now, the drawdown protocols are really important in this as well. So understanding the volatility tolerance of yourself and your team and your partners is a really important part of the game. To finish first, you must first finish, right? And unfortunately, that point of equanimity, you only find it out in the thick of battle and it evolves. So it's a very, very challenging paradigm to solve. For us, we know because we chose an excellent game that if we get hit by price volatility, which we did in COVID, we own excellent assets and we know how much they're worth, or at least we have a pretty good fix on what their earnings power is two, three, four years out. It may not be two, three months out, but we have a pretty good idea on the profit potential of our portfolio and over time it will recover. So we have protocols to how to deal with each of these rotations and also how to determine between are we wrong or is it price volatility? And where did you come out in terms of just your gross long exposure, given all these different factors? So we sit at about 130 today. And I think this is a really important question for long, short portfolios and even long only portfolios for that matter. I think it's human nature to want to hold dry powder. It's just satisfying being able to add down. It sounds better. It sounds more responsible, more adult. The problem is our cost of capital, our realized earnings power is 20% the last four years, including COVID. And we project 30 to 40 over the next two to three years. Very high for our standards, but it's coming out of a cyclical trough. For us to own hold dry powder, the base rate of a 20% drawdown in markets is about 5% of time. And so you have to time that perfectly in order for that dry powder to be executed in our portfolio construct. So at the moment, we've moved it to a central tenancy of about 130. In a long short portfolio, 
one of the core advantages of long short is the levered balance sheet. And so if we don't use leverage, we're kind of fighting with only one arm tied behind our back. And then on the other side, how does that sum up to your short exposure and has that varied over time? Short exposure sits at about 50% today. It varies between 20 and 50. So the other part that's very difficult here and something that has to be thought through before battle is the dynamic nature of what do you do into, into major drawdowns? So for example, I think it's also misunderstood. In a massive drawdown, your shorts have been eviscerated. You have to cover them. They're extremely dangerous. In fact, they're the most dangerous thing in your portfolio. And so it's highly counterintuitive, but actually there's so many things about investing that are counterintuitive. Fear is the greatest gift to our style of investing. Greed is the enemy. The only time we get to buy things cheaply is when there's tremendous amount of fear. It's incredibly dangerous for long-term compounding when people are all greedy. So into a massive drawdown, macro drawdown, shorts, the first priority in a long short portfolio is get all the shorts out of the book, which naturally adds netting risk to your portfolio. So our protocol into material macro drawdowns is we cover aggressively our book. We only had three shorts left by the end of March, right? We covered everything and that dramatically increased our net exposure, which by the way means you can't use up what is natural in the balance sheet capacity of your long book because the the third dimension here is net exposure and you need to be able to think all of that through in advance and also make sure that everybody is aligned with that goal you use the words game selection i want to take a step back a little bit from your own research process and think about how do you view game selection Let's just start with in long short equity, which has been under scrutiny for so long. So let me define game selection. First of all, I think it's the most important decision we as leaders and as allocators make. It's literally choose the game. And what I mean by that is there is tons of very hardworking, hyper intelligent people in this industry. If you don't direct them to an inefficient market with a system to exploit that inefficiency, that effort is wasted. It's by far the most important decision we make. And by the way, from my perspective, the most transformative moment in my investing career was shifting from variant perception to unfair fights. I made it in 2016. My firm is named after Genghis Khan's army, and the whole notion of his strategy was based on unfair fights. And that one decision changed everything in our approach to our long book. We even stopped using the three playbooks because only one mattered once you embrace this one fact. So game selection, and, and now let's shift to the long short equity business. Long short equity, when I entered it in 2000, it was experiencing what would be at that point a decade of the golden era, like uncorrelated, extremely high returns, a dream shot for equity investors. And then everything changed in GFC. So part of the reason I came into the long short world was it was an advantaged balance sheet. We could do things that others couldn't that helped us be uncorrelated, manage risk and generate alpha through cycle. Private equity, REITs, have advantaged balance sheets. Private equity, levered recap is one of the most important levers they have. By the way, you know, incredible advantage that allows for multiple trillions or sorry, billions of dollars to be able to exploit this much alpha at this much scale. So what happened is, yes, there's been a lot of changes in the long short world. And I actually believe we've got to evolve because there was dramatic shifts in GFC that we need to pay attention to. And so what 
is the optimal way of approaching long short equity today? First of all, I don't want to say that I ever know what optimal ever means. I think there's so many ways to make money and there's so many gifted investors that just like investing at large, I don't think there is a perfect way. However, there are choices to be made. So let me stop and look back and then explain what my answer to that is. First of all, there was a secular and cyclical changes that have affected this industry over the past 10 years. The secular shift that we worked out in 2010, it creeped up on us. Interest rates drive short rebate. Short rebate is what allowed us to be uncorrelated and very high through cycle return. That changed in GFC. So the front end of the curve drives short rebate. Front end of the curve went to the zero bound. So short rebate went from four to 500 basis points to negative 40 basis points at present. That is a dramatic shift in the business model, which I believe to be secular. I don't believe the front end of the curve is getting back to those levels in a very long time. The impact henceforth is how much alpha is required to create a through cycle, profit neutral or additive on a PL basis short portfolio. At 500 basis points, you needed about three to 400 basis points of alpha to break even through cycle. That lets you lever for long short spread through cycle. Now it's closer to 800 basis points. That's a very heavy lift to break even. The second was the industry has faced a very strong cyclical upcycle market. S&P 500 has generated almost 17% compounded returns since GFC. That's extraordinarily strong. Through cycle returns, total return is closer to be between 8 and 10%, depending upon the time series you use. So very, very cyclically strong. I don't believe structure of markets has changed and that can persist. In fact, I think it's challenging to do even higher than mid-single digits this next decade. But those are the two things that the industry faced and long-short equity is a lower than 100 net structure, which will always lag a super up cycle because it beats it when it's middling or when it's going down. So to answer your question, what's the right structure? The choice, in my view, is alpha is still alpha and it's very valuable and it's hard to mine. So the choice is alpha transport. Do you transport it from a high net structure? And I think, Ted, that depends on the use case. So the irony of all ironies for me is I actually think the two extremes here are bond proxy, or high throughput return. Bond proxy in a 60-40 world, the role of the 40 was to be up into a down equity market and generate yield. Obviously, yield is very challenged now, but to be able to generate through cycle return and be uncorrelated is a big hole in 60-40 portfolio structure, which ironically, market neutral hedge funds are prime position to do, but they must be up into down equity markets. That is the requirement. And so transporting alpha to a low net structure is exceedingly valuable. The issue is the expected returns there should be between 6 and 9% net. Anything more than that, which by the way, there are people who are doing significantly more than that. They're extremely skilled. But that's a choice on do they court it from that or to a higher net structure. And if they moved all that alpha to a market enhanced through cycle return, the numbers would be even bigger. So we as a firm, made a strategic choice in 2016, we're the latter. We're focused on through cycle return. Our quest in investing was to compete in, the, in the, the right tail. We came here to compete on how much we could compound capital over long periods of time. So we have ported our alpha to a higher net structure based upon our horses to compound capital as tax efficiently and as briskly as we can for as long as we can. As time goes on, what's the appropriate fee structure for that type of vehicle? So the first part of this is, so management fee, hurdle, and incentive are the three parts of the equation here. Management fee, you know, there's four parts of the equation to get to the right tail. The fifth is absolutely expenses and fees. 
for net returns for clients. And if you're going to be in the business of investing, obviously the only thing that matters is how much value we create for our clients. So the first one on management fee is I think the industry is evolving to scaling. Why? Because management fee was always designed to give us edge and keep the business in play, provide ballast to the business. By the way, too lean on that is not good either, in my view, right? It creates fragility into the business model. And I believe most fund structures are already quite fragile. It doesn't help to make them more fragile. The second one then is some form of hurdle. The reason I say that is if you're going to be a higher net exposure, there obviously is some beta in the portfolio and beta can be sourced more cheaply. And then the last part of this is the splits on the carry for the value that's created. The industry norm is on an alpha perspective, something around the 30% mark is deemed over long periods of time to have been appropriate, but there needs to be demonstrated skill for that. And so I believe, and that's what we've done too, is a scaling management fee, a fixed hurdle, right? Hard hurdle, no catch up, and then a fixed component of the carry above it. Now, the last part of that obviously is duration, which goes from completely liquid to higher locks. In theory, we would be looking obviously for matched duration. That's what lets us weather volatility. This is a really critical question because I actually think it's time arbitrage is the most powerful weapon you have in markets actually on top of skill. It's an amplifier of skill. And the reason it's an amplifier of skill is the cost of high performance is volatility. It's also the provider of it. And if, if structures are fragile in times of volatility, literally, is, that's when the opportunity is being presented and it's creating systems level risk. So duration has to be matched with the strategy and alignment needs to occur very early in the process to understand the volatility characteristics of any strategy. One of the things you touched on earlier is the reality that this is sort of a deeply personal and human business at its core. And I'm curious, as you've thought through all of these structural things about the business and the processes that you wanted to implement, what parts of it do you think resonated most for you in establishing kind of the goals and the processes that, particularly from 2016 forward, that you wanted to implement with you and your team? So Ted, one of the first realizations for me in deeply studying high-performance management teams as well as high-performing investors is the element of authenticity. So what I found is there's three A's in high-performance teams, authenticity, autonomy, and accountability. Stars need the room to make mistakes, learn, perform, and they need to be held accountable because A players like to play with A players. The authenticity part is the most important part of all though. Why? Because there's thousands of funds in this world. And if you're going to make a contribution, it needs to be the most genuine version of you. That's the only thing that the world needs. It doesn't need another fund. And so for us, the first lesson that came through here is let's go back to the three frameworks. We've done very well with two of them. We've done woefully with a third. I know the strategy works. It's me. That's the variable. So the analog I give you there is I've had tennis lessons almost my entire life. I'm 49 years old. I'm never going to be Roger Federer, right? Roger has the talent and the ability to execute at a very high level. I know what a perfect forehand looks like. I just can't hit them under stress all the time. And I think this is a really important thing most people have to get in mind is like, just because you know what's the right thing to do doesn't mean you can do it. And anybody who's had a golf lesson or a tennis lesson should know that. Why they think investing is different, I don't understand. Right? Barriers to entry in this business are exceedingly low. Barriers to excellence are incredibly high. And so for us, we had to match who we are with the strategy. I know that horses or compounders works. I completely understand it. 
Now, from an authenticity matching my temperament and my skill, my team's temperament and our skill to that strategy is a critical part of this. So we actually had to part ways with some extreme talent that doesn't have the temperament to do this. We went 17 months. We bought one stock. We didn't trade a single share in our long book in the fourth quarter of this year. If you have lots of analysts, that's a really challenging thing for them to do if they're not prepared to focus on preparation rather than daily activity. Culturally, we're a nightmare for the vast majority of the long short world. Complete and utter nightmare. For a select few, it's nirvana. So for us, the matching of who we are with the strategy, there are many elements of this that really matter to me. One is, first of all, and this is just resonant, I think false confidence is deadly in this business. So I need to have the confidence when I take action, I need it based on facts and fact patterns that I can see and I can count upon. And so for me, the quality of the business and the quality of the people we deal with are elemental to what we do. To arbitrage volatility, it requires the ability for one side of the two-side equation to be relatively fixed. So price volatility and business volatility, we have to separate the two. And so that's a really important part for us. I don't like both sides of it. I can't exploit it consistently. So what happened to me, again, I understand all the three sources of monstrous alpha. The one that resonated most deeply with who I am and frankly gave me peace of mind and equanimity and peace of mind, I think are really underrated concepts in investing. Simplicity is the other one, right? It's really hard to execute consistently over two decades, yet alone at the highest possible levels. And if you don't have equanimity in storms, you can't make good decisions. And so for us, this took us quite a while. In fact, I think it's one of the most important insights I've ever had is we understand the essence of why we're authentically aligned with that strategy And now it's allowed us to build out every part of our business model to be consistent with it, which, by the way, the cost of it, we will willingly underperform certain types of markets. You have to. That's the cost of this level of performance. You have to. You have to be able to stick with it because no strategy is evergreen. And when you're truly resonant with it, you don't give up on it. And we're patient because we can see earnings power drives every day. What was it in your personal journey that led to that alignment happening, call it five years ago, compared to when you started your forum or even earlier in your time at ZBI? Part of this was already in there, but this takes a lot of introspective work. Quality has always been a touchstone for me. So I'm a double immigrant. Double immigrant means if you don't work hard, no one's coming to help you. Now, I've got two very loving parents, so it's not completely literal. But you know, when we moved to Australia, when we were very young, I mean, we didn't exactly have a sporting community that was there to capture us. And, you know, my dad and my mom had to work very hard to make sure we were okay. And then my wife and I moved to America after that with literally the last thousand dollars we had in our pocket. So part of this for me is just deeply understanding the root of my strength and what I'd already known. And it's a bit of an irony because we literally named this fund after Genghis Khan's army. Right. And we knew. And the reason why I started this was he did extraordinary things, focusing exclusively on unfair fights exclusively. Why? Because to do anything extraordinary can't be close. The odds must be stacked in your favor. And I just had to do lots and lots of internal work. And I look through all my time. This is whether it's sports, academics, business, investing, what were the patterns? And we studied, by the way, in the summer of 2016, we studied every trade we did up till that point. And we looked at the patterns of our behavior and the thesis and the outcomes. And it was really clear We were very quiet when volatility hit us in our horses, barely touched them. And actually, we were strong. We would add, or at worst, 
we just held through, but we very, very rarely lost our strength. I looked at the other two. The second one actually was pretty good too. The third one was a disaster. We could not work out risk from volatility. We really couldn't. As something down 50, we would add and go, based on what? It's still a projection we can't work out if the thesis is holding or not. And so again, for me, I just didn't have the skill to navigate it. But it was really just looking at the facts and then surrounding ourselves with people who helped us see the truth. You also know it when you go through periods like COVID. And if you have equanimity, you've absolutely found it. And I believe we've found it for us. You mentioned unfair fights. And most of the time in investing, when people think about those inefficient markets, unfair fights, it's usually some idiosyncratic new thing in a corner somewhere where other people aren't playing. And the core of what you're doing, these horses are generally well-regarded companies and names. And I'm curious, why do you think that is an unfair fight? First of all, we define an unfair fight by the competitive win rate is very high. So you win a lot more than you lose and you retain a lot more than you lose. And the starting premise of that is business quality compounds value every day. So the question you're really asking, and this is the big quest. So the quest to the right tail, the right tail being defined as the hall of fame of investing or extremely high return, whatever you want to define it at. But how do you get there? The game of investing is about how do you systematically exploit inefficiency? That's the real question. And so the questions for us is where does the inefficiency lie and what is your system to go exploit it? Our quest is effectively finding durable brisk compounders and we find them in inefficient volatility. So the thing that we have to separate here is we define inefficient markets as those where edge and skill has a benefit. You can accrue consistent outperformance against that market, alpha. The next one is what is an efficient market? An efficient market is, means there's no benefit to skill. Either it's being competed away or it's completely unknowable. These concepts are different than competitive markets. You can have competitive markets that are efficient or inefficient. You can have uncompetitive markets that are efficient or inefficient. And now the last layer here is volatility. So volatility is price volatility and pricing discovery. So the separation between price volatility and business volatility is a ridiculously important concept to us. In general, our stocks will be volatile at times, but our businesses in general are not. So we can have fluxing prices, but we have very steady businesses. We can exploit volatility because we have one set of assumptions on intrinsic value. We can exploit when price meets or goes below our intrinsic value. If both are fluxing, it's very difficult. So the question in the quest is, are they inefficient markets or are they temporally inefficient? So inefficient markets are like microcap. It's very difficult for institutions to compete against individuals in microcap. Henceforth, it's systematically inefficient. Now, it doesn't mean they're always knowable either, to be fully clear. There are lots of businesses that are immature in there or, frankly, completely unknowable, very low quality businesses. You can still also get efficient markets within microcap. The next part, which is, I think, this is the way it led me on, was we have some extraordinary right-tail investors. For example, Eddie Lampert, Tepper, Taurus, Druckermiller, who've generated extraordinary returns, Paul Tudor Jones, in very, very large markets. How is that even possible? And what I discovered is I call it temporal inefficiency. It's a paradox. Most of the time, these are very efficient markets, but there are always occasions And you don't need many in a year if you run a concentrated portfolio where they go inefficient for a moment. And once you get great basis, and this is the paradox going back to the question of the ride, you have to embrace that our basis was inefficiently exploited, but there are times when it's going to have to go through 
efficient or even on the other side, overpriced stages to capture the five to 10X. And so what we've focused on, it's extraordinary. Why is it even possible that large cap stocks can go up 100% since March of this year? Efficient markets don't behave that way, but they do at very few occasions in time. And that's all we need. So as you look out over the coming years, what do you see as the biggest challenges to success? Let me touch on market observations and then let me touch on business construct, if I may. From the market observations, I think there's three big thematics that we'll have to face. One is there's obviously certain speculative components in the market today. The second is there's a big inflation debate. And then third, there's some tugs on factors, growth value as an example, and, and small cap versus large cap. So in terms of the market outlook, speculative markets are challenging markets to deal with. But again, in the next 20 years, we're going to face them all. So what's the specific challenge of this? It means retail, by the way, is fully back. So retail is 20% of traded volume right now. It's double what it was in 2019. It's driving a lot of options. It's driving pockets of extreme movement. We saw this in 2010 and 1999. It's kind of interesting. It's two things mixed together. So you've got secular and you've got dramatic cyclical. So we've got micro caps dramatically outperforming the large caps, by the way, on dollar value of stock as well as size of company. This is classic what happened in 2010. And actually a cyclical recovery, yet alone one of this size, the worst quality businesses fly the most. In fact, the worst quality businesses that are levered fly the most. If I was a trader, that's what I would be trading right now. That's, I know the framework. I just don't want to use it. Very dangerous way to invest in my view. But that is the land of the hundred right now. And there's plenty of them absolutely flying on top of the technological innovation that's going on. So we have 99 and 2010 minced together right now. We have to be able to navigate the cyclical recovery and the extreme right and left tail movement of retail. That's the marginal price setter of markets. Henceforth, we have to adjust risk. And we have to be careful about where we expose ourselves to cyclical recovery, long or short. The next one is inflation. This is a really big one. We've gone through a 30-year deflationary boom. Lots of stuff written about this. And I'm not a macro aware. I don't make big risk decisions based on macro. But the one part I do want to message is I actually think we're in for a very substantial demand shock to the upside. And the reason I say this is... When I look through all of the data, I can't think of a major demand center that's not going to be coordinated up and up in the next two years. I don't think we've seen this since the Second World War. So from the U.S. perspective, the consumer, business, and government are all in all at the same time. The U.S. consumer, by the way, is fully back. They're fully spending. They're spending it more on goods than services, but they're already fully back. Wage income is almost fully back to COVID levels. Unemployment skewed dramatically towards low wage. The human cost of this is extremely real, but the economic cost of it is completely misunderstood. 68% of all jobs that are lost is low end wage versus 50% that was middle class in GFC. The economic cost is dramatically different. The government transferred $630 billion of excess payments to cover off lost wages. It covered it by an extra $630 billion before the Biden $1.9 trillion stimulus. There is a lot of firepower coming. The next part of this is, I think, government policy. This is the first time we've seen coordinated fiscal and monetary policy coordinated in this country in quite a while. And then finally, the whole world is recovering at the same time. We haven't had this in multiple decades because COVID pulled us all down. We're all coming out at the same time. This is a shock that's coming to the right side of the demand curve. Now, I don't know if that translates to inflation, but I do believe we have a very, very good shot at it.
And so finally, the question is in that environment, what impact does it have on growth versus value and on small cap versus large cap? And there is very strong historic views on some of this, and we'll have to navigate all of it. The impact for us is we play our game and that'll inform us at the margin. We don't really change our strategy. It's mathematically tautological what we do, but I believe those to be the big challenges that we face market-wide. Yeah, and last question before you know, we turn to a couple of closing questions, which is what are you most excited about over the next couple of years for your business? So we are five years into this thesis. We're seven years old as of this February. I'm the most excited I've ever been in my career, Ted. And so what I'm excited about is I think we have found for us the strategy that we know we can exploit through cycle for long periods of time. So our quest to the right tail, we have the strategy, we have the team, the team will evolve, obviously, over time, but I have an incredible team right now that I hope to be able to go through that whole passage together. We're assembling and finding our new partners that want to be part of that quest. It's not going to be straight. And when you get the right partners, you can achieve extraordinary things. And I've met many of those extraordinary people. So the most extraordinary part for me or what I'm most excited about, A, I think our business is positioned to do, I can see exactly what we have to do to get to the 20-year right tail. And we just have to go and do it. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's going to require a grind every single day to do it. But we know what we have to do and how to do it. Doesn't mean it's going to guarantee us getting there. But I think our track record of success over these past four years gives me tremendous confidence in our abilities to do it. We'll constantly be 1% better all the time. And there's a couple of very big ones focused in there. We know where to find them. We know how to ride them. We know how to risk manage them. There's three things that I look for in our goals. One is peace of mind and transformative performance for our partners. The second is an ecosystem of great ideas, people, and businesses. And that really matters to me because doing great things with great people is probably the most joyful thing in the world for me. And then the final part of it is just have a hell of a lot of fun. And Ted, you know, we're having a ball in our firm. I'm so proud of them. And we have an incredible portfolio. We're partnered with extraordinary people that we learn from every day. And now we're partnering with people who are frankly changing the world and helping them realize their visions is such an honor. But I think this is the most exciting time in history to be alive right now from just abroad what's going on in the economy and from a technological perspective. And it's just such a privilege to be able to invest and study it. Fantastic. All right, Yan, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions before I let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, there's very little time outside of work and family. The first one would be I'm an avid reader. So I try to read between 70 and 100 books a year. I love to read. And fortunately, that feeds obviously into our core passion of investing. My biggest hobby, which obviously has also been challenged by COVID, is I love to travel. I'm an Aussie to the heart. And uh, I did a, you know 300-day trips around the world in my 20s, which were the best things I ever did. And I really miss being on the road and just seeing the world and, and being close with my friends. And the last part of that, my wife and I are big foodies. It's all linked into that. I think it's one of the greatest joys in life. And uh, I can't wait to go back and explore all the great food around the world. What's your most important daily habit? Journaling alongside meditation. So I meditate 20 minutes first of every day. And then right after it, I journal for 20 to 30 minutes. And journaling lets me consolidate all my thinking. And I think it's really important that it's writing that really pushes all the various elements that's been brewing inside my head from overnight in the prior day. But journaling has been a game changer for me. I've been doing this for, gosh, it's over 20 years now, and I'm still evolving how I do it. I think it's the most important discipline because it lets you take your threads of thought and push them. We're in the business of thinking, and it's the most important part of my day. It's always done in the first part of the morning, so it's uninterrupted and not filled with just the randomness of the day. I would so strongly recommend it. It's changed my game. It's changed my life. It makes everything 
much more explicit. And it's really, really the most critical part of my day. What's your favorite book? Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. Changed my life. I think it's a top five investment book of all time, written by Professor Jack Weatherford. Khan conquered 10 million square miles of this earth in 30 years. And the business analog of this is you cannot do extraordinary things doing ordinary things. He was, in my view, the most extraordinary applied learner in history of mankind. And I think there's lots of misconceptions about the Mongols and Khan, but my goodness, was there a lot to learn from him. What's your biggest pet peeve? I'd say it's wasted potential. There's so many people who, you know, if they're listening to this podcast, by definition, they've won the ovarian lottery. They've been lucky enough to be be born into a society that's very well established and hopefully beyond the basic needs. The thing that kills me is when I see talent and It lacks the initiative and fire, the ignition to go after it. So in the history of mankind, this is literally the best time ever to be alive. And there are literally billions of people that would kill for most of our worst days. It eats me up so much when I see incredible talent that's lazy and they don't have the fire to go pursue it. It's such a gift that our creator has given to each of us. And it's, in my view, disrespectful not to go try fulfill it. And it's just so much fun to try. And how about in the investment realm? Anything within the investment industry, your pet peeve? Arrogance and false confidence. Let's just step back and think about what we actually do for a living. When we place a bet, we are saying we're right and the whole world is wrong. My God, is that arrogant, right? I mean, gosh, just stop and think about that every time we act. We're right, the whole world is wrong. And so the other part of this is false confidence. Do you really think you know something that no one else knows? Seriously. I mean, seriously. And by the way, if that's true, it's likely illegal. (laughs) Right? So arrogance for me is, the term is like, you either be humble or you be humbled. And by the way, the first is a hell of a lot cheaper than the latter. Right? It's such a privilege to be in this business. I just have no time for arrogance. And it's actually, in my view, it's exceedingly dangerous. I believe in confidence. False confidence is deadly. And so my number one pet peeve is when the chest pounders of the the super uber analyst is like, I respect you probably made some really good calls, but if you're that aggressive, it only takes one to knock you out. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My mom is a very strong woman. She's five foot four, but she might as well have been a Mongol warrior. So this woman did not take crap from anyone. She stood up for herself. She stood up for her family. She stood up for her community. And my fire comes from my mom, right? We had some really rough times in Australia. I mean, we turned up barely five years after the white Australia policy. They'd never even seen Asians in some parts of Australia. And she was tough to see through what we had to see through. And I learned deeply from those lessons. My dad, who was a dentist, super kind. What I learned from my dad is he always looked out for the overlooked. So this may seem very small, but it was always profound to me. My dad, every time we traveled, would always tip the housekeepers. Why? Because they never got acknowledgement for their efforts, always went out of his way to do it. And so for me, he always made it clear to me, you may be gifted, you may be successful, but you are not better than anyone. Look out for everyone. Why? Because they're humans and they deserve the respect and our attention. And I love that. Great. All right. Last one. And I'm going to ask you about mistakes for our premium members. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? The number one is game selection. I think this changes lives entirely. 
people, if they're even listening to this podcast, are invested in improving themselves. But if you don't choose the right game, no effort is going to matter. So if you're choosing efficient volatility, you're just running in circles. You're tap dancing on landmines. You've got to know where to focus your effort and then unleash all the hounds inside of you to go and attack it, but choose the right game. And so unfair fights changes everything. And I wish I'd known that younger and with a little bit more attention. I've got a lot of energy, but a lot of it was wasted. And I think, look, it's inevitable part of the game. But having wise counsel to know where to focus that energy and focus on the right game changes everything. Yeah, and it's amazing. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ted. All right, let's cap this last one off. What is the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? There are two linked, Ted, and a third if you want to go into portfolio management. But the two that I think are the biggest ones is authenticity and then character. Authenticity, I made a huge mistake when I started Aravat Global in that I was failing conventionally. I went into a classic tiger construct and it's terrifying being fully authentic. Why? Because it fully exposes you to rejection. You're completely naked. But by the way, I think that's the most important gift you can ever give yourself. Why? Because we only have one life. And if you really give it your all and you do it smartly, whatever happens is actually the truth. It's peace of mind. It just is. And so when you are truly deeply authentic, first of all, it's much more powerful because it's the root is you. It's not someone else. You may not win, but I guarantee you, you won't lose. And the number one thing from being authentic is you can't live a life of regret. So you get the huge benefit of peace of mind and equanimity because you're at peace. Whatever happens is yours. It's okay. It's your best effort and it's good enough, by the way. But it eliminates forever regret. And so authenticity is the biggest one I want to send through this is like it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be authentic. And by the way, I faced some awful rejection from this, right? It's not fun, but my God, it gives you peace of mind. And then linked to this is character over the successful. I admired the successful people in this world and often overlooked their character. My wife has an enormous bullshit meter. Like she can smell character from a mile away and will not tolerate anyone who isn't kind, nice to their core. No interest in it because she doesn't care how successful people are. And I love her for that. There are so many talented a-holes in this business And I used to say, you know what, their talent, I can look the other direction. I just try to do good things with good people. And life is so much simpler and frankly, so much more fun when you do it. And again, if you do it that way, you may not win, but you can't really lose. And I'll leave you with one of my close friends has a saying, we're all going to lose money in this business. We might as well lose money with the people that we like. Right. And I firmly believe it. Great. Yeah, and this is awesome. Thanks again. Ted, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 